If you like music's greatest mysteries, you've got to check out Dan Rather's The Big Interview for some incredible true stories from the biggest names in music. Check out the podcast sometime. On this episode of Music's Greatest Mysteries, does Napster change the album and the entire music industry forever? People were sharing millions and millions of files every day. We should have all realized that this was like insanely illegal. Then, the tragic story of Keith Moon's chauffeur and his mysterious death. It haunted him for the rest of his life. And finally, the wild tale behind the millennium anthem, Who Let the Dogs Out? That's when people came out of the woodwork and go, I wrote this, I wrote this. Today, the music industry is dominated by streaming services. If you look at what Spotify and Amazon Music, Apple Music are now, people don't want to buy a whole album if they only want one, two, or three songs. Is this modern age of music consumption a direct result of a dot-com startup? Napster is the name of a highly controversial new online technology written by a 19-year-old college dropout named Sean Fanning. This thing called Napster, this whole open space where everybody can trade music. Napster as an idea was massive. It changed the game. Changes the game, no doubt. But in the process, does Napster also forever change the album, too? They made the entire record industry go, who cares about your album? We need one song. The debate begins with the advent of a new technology founded in the early 80s. Album sales skyrocketed because people had to replace their beloved album collection with things that they could play on a new machine, which was the CD player. There was a sense of, oh, this is the new thing, so we can charge more money for it and people will pay it. Philips announced the next best thing to live music, compact disc. This was the big last laugh all the way to the bank for the music business, a $28.9 billion profit industry. And then something changed. A new file format, the MP3. That changed everything. It opened a whole new door. Armed with this new software, a couple of teenagers, Sean Fanning and Sean Parker, launched Napster and revolutionized the industry. The Shans from Napster, they were excited about music. They were excited about technology. I just you know, wanted to create a way to meet people through music. They had this software and this program that they knew could work. And you know what we're providing is just a way for people to share their personal material. MP3s started becoming the main way that people started listening to music. And before Napster, that just wasn't a thing. People would take their CDs that they bought and upload the entire album, and folks would go to Napster and get just the one song that they like off that album and share with their friends. When you scale it up like that, people were downloading and sharing millions and millions and millions of files every day. We should have all realized that this was, like, insanely illegal. Within a year of its launch, Napster has nearly 25 million unique users sharing millions of songs without a penny going to the record companies or musicians. I actually worked in Columbia Records when this was all happening, and I remember the president of Columbia Records goes off on a rant, we gotta figure out a way to shut down this Napster thing. 
The two Shawns in any other era might have been found dead on the street dealing with the music business in that disruptive way, but instead, those two guys became pioneers in the sharing platform. This platform is not only a problem for the labels, it's also affecting musicians. And pretty soon, the biggest metal band on the planet takes a stand. Metallica became the face of the music industry against Napster. All of a sudden, like, this song that we were still working on, the studio was being played on, like, 30 radio stations across America. It was like, what the f is that? Metallica felt really upset and betrayed. This was with us, we'll with you back. And utilized the press to attack this program. Napster, sharing's only fun when it's not your stuff. Lars and Metallica decide to sue Napster and to make it very clear that they are hurting people's livelihoods. Soon, other artists, including Dr. Dre, follow Metallica's lead. But they're not just going after Napster, they're also threatening their fans. They also find the individual users that are sharing music. There's all transparency on this program. There's no privacy. So they were able to build a case. They were asking for like 12K for every illegally downloaded stream. They took everyone and turned them into their enemy and into villains, and they weren't. There's only one way to assemble a music collection, the equivalent of a Napster user, theft. Coming up, is the residual impact of Napster's technology the end of the album? Napster is responsible for introducing us back to that world. The single became king again. And later, is Keith Moon really responsible for his friend's death? Keith is frantic, jumps out of the car, he tries to pull him out from underneath the car, and he comes up with basically his brains in his hand. March 2000, as profits from record sales continue to plummet, Metallica, Dr. Dre, and the record industry wage a legal battle on Napster. If you're gonna try to stop me from making a living, I'm gonna have to fight you to the death. But is it too late? Has the music business changed forever? Fans love Napster because it enabled them to be able to get just the songs they want without spending 18 to 20 bucks on a CD filled with songs that they didn't like. When Metallica was bitching about the fact that it was gonna kill the industry, they weren't talking about themselves. They had made their money. They were talking about the future, especially for new bands. Most artists are barely earning a decent wage and need every source of revenue available to scrape by. And they were absolutely right. Eventually, the Recording Industry Association of America joins Metallica and Dre's lawsuit. And on July 27th, 2000, Napster is finished. In history making court ruling against Napster, the most popular music sharing service online is the first major victory for the recording industry. But does the record industry really win this battle? In the 20 years since the birth of Napster, record sales see a 50% decline in profits. So who are the real winners? To share music files was this great idea that went on to inspire Facebook. Now we can turn it into a way of socializing with one another in a very personal way, which then spawned dating apps. So it was this incredible social revolution.
Napster co-founder Sean Parker eventually becomes a billionaire as the president of Facebook and board member of Spotify. But does his innovation destroy the album as we know it? Did Napster kill the album? I'd say, absolutely. It did kill the album, but here's the thing. It was just a matter of time before streaming was gonna become the new norm anyway. It happened quickly, maybe a little too quickly, but it did happen. The music business started as a singles business. You had one song and it got on the radio and you know, that's what we heard, single, single, singles. Napster is responsible for introducing us back to that world. The single became king again. Perhaps rock and roll's greatest drummer and one of music's most notorious wild men, Keith Moon. Keith Moon's debauchery, decadence, mayhem was absolutely legendary. Wrecking hotel rooms, putting M80s down toilets and throwing TVs out the window. Driving cars into swimming pools, that's Keith Moon. He was nothing but trouble. But does his recklessness lead to murder? Keith gets behind the wheel of that car and guns the motor. And just rams through the crowd. Keith Moon was blamed, but nobody really knew who drove the car. Maybe Keith was covering for somebody. This tragedy haunted him for the rest of his life. By the late 60s, two bands from the British Invasion have changed music forever. While the Stones and Beatles dominate the pop charts, it's the Who who become recognized as the English rock and roll band with an edge. Of all the Who, people remember Keith Moon the most just because he was just so outrageous and flamboyant. You Australian slag, piss off! Keith Moon had such a reputation as an animal that a character was allegedly created after him. Animal from the Muppets is Keith Moon. People were just blown away by his incredible passion and energy. And he was just so interesting to watch play. By the end of the 60s, this passion and energy has made Keith Moon notorious. He's already been arrested for drunken behavior and gets the Who banned from Holiday Inn hotels. His decadence and reputation are finally catching up with him. If you lead a lifestyle like Keith Moon led, it's going to show. And in fact, you look at a photograph taken of Keith in 1964, he looks like a schoolboy. You look at him seven years later, he's an old man. Keith Moon had the kind of personality to take it further than everyone else. So if people were drinking, he had to drink more. If people were partying with pills, he took more. And he took them with no thought about the consequences. On January 4th, 1970, Keith Moon is feeling bulletproof. Armed with his misguided self-confidence, he goes out for a night of boozing. Joined by an entourage of partiers, including his wife, Kim, and chauffeur, Neil Bowman. A friend of Keith's was going to be opening up a pub, and he was invited to the grand opening. 
Keith is rather ostentatious, drinking brandy while everybody at the bar is drinking beer. And there's a lot of antagonism towards him, but he's pretty oblivious to it because he's just doing what is expected of him. Turns out, the patrons at this pub are skinheads and don't care that Keith Moon is a celebrity. He had no idea what was really coming down that night, and it turned out to be tragic. The skinheads chase Moon and his crew out of the bar and eventually surround his car. Driver Neil Boland exits the car and tries to calm the angry mob. Neil gets out of the car, and while he was outside the car, Keith Moon gets behind the wheel and guns the motor. People started yelling and screaming and hitting the car. He thought it was just the people who are attacking him. The skinheads, they were trying to say, there's something under your car. Neil ends up underneath the car and is run over by Keith Moon driving the car. Keith is frantic. Oh my God, that's Neil, that's Neil. He tries to pull him out from underneath the car and he comes up with basically his brains in his hand. Coming up, Keith Moon admits to driving the car and killing his friend. But is he covering for someone else? Everybody in the car said, we were all so drunk we can't be sure. And later, who really let the dogs out? <laughs> On January 4th, 1970, Keith Moon and his entourage are out drinking when a fight breaks out between Moon's crew and a group of skinheads. In the aftermath, Moon's chauffeur, Neil Boland, is run over in a tragic accident. Moon claims he's the driver and pleads guilty to drunk driving. Now the court must decide if he deserves to be charged with manslaughter or worse, murder. So this is front page news. I mean, there is an investigation, but he's eventually exonerated. The judge goes lenient on Keith Moon. No moral culpability is attached to you. That's what the judge said. Instead, five of the attackers are blamed for Neil Boland's death. Yet rumors persist that Moon couldn't have been driving in the first place, consistent with the fact that he never drove. He needed to have a driver. So he's drunk, he's driving a car that he really doesn't know how to drive. Everybody in the car said, we were all so drunk we can't be sure. Years later, Neil Boland's daughter launched an investigation of her own, tracked down one of the skinheads, and he said Keith was not driving the car. It was his wife, Kim, and there were a couple of other people who backed that story. I mean, did he cover for her? Keith Moon is a big star. It would be easier for a guy like him to get off than it would his wife. We don't really know. Keith was driving because Legs, Larry Smith, was in the car, and he told me that story. And I know Keith, and he would wake up screaming in the night, saying, I'm a murderous It haunted him for the rest of his life. No one else is ever investigated in the death of Neil Boland, and the judge's ruling in 1970 remains official. Keith Moon succumbs to his own demons in 1978 with a drug overdose. He is only 31 years old. Keith Moon was the most outrageous drummer of his day. 
the Who was a bombastic group, but Keith Moon made the group even more bombastic. He was a party animal, but there's a dark side to that drinking and drug taking. What do you think of the song, Who Let the Dogs Out? Who let the dogs out? One of the most annoying songs I've ever heard. It gets stuck in your head. You're gonna be singing it all day. While it's fun, it's a very stupid song. In 2000, a band named The Baja Men released an earworm, creating a different kind of anthem for the new millennium. Who's like the Abercrombie and Fitch smell of songs. You couldn't get away from it. It becomes a cultural phenomenon. Look at licensed and used in sporting events. It's just one of these chants that people know everywhere. But just as quickly as the song becomes ubiquitous, so too does the controversy surrounding its origins. That's when people came out of the woodwork and go, I wrote this, I wrote this. Everything from Caribbean musicians to teams chanting it, it existed in so many different places and in so many different ways. That song opened up a can of worms. In 2010, a decade removed since the release of the Baja Men's hit song, a Staten Island-based artist is killing time at a coffee shop. I did not have a job, have an abundance of free time. This leads to an abundance of time on Wikipedia. Somehow I get to the Who Let the Dogs Out page, and I notice this omission. Sisto notices a puzzling gap in the song's origins. And I thought, I'm gonna fix the Wikipedia page for Who Let the Dogs Out, just as a fun little thing to do. Curious, he finds the music copyright lawyer and gives her a ring. Immediately, she's on the defensive. You're turning up there. You're turning on ground that could possibly create another lawsuit. I started wondering, well, who has been paid? Who hasn't been paid? It felt like someone was getting the short end of the stick. So I thought, I'm going to keep asking people who let the dogs out. And then it just snowballed from there. Coming up, did the Baja Men's classic originate in the Caribbean, or possibly in Texas? Even that phrase, who let the dogs out, had been heard many times before. Artist Ben Sisto is on a mission to uncover the true origins of the Baja Men's Y2K hit, Who Let the Dogs Out? Before the Baja Men put it out, there are many different songs that sound like it. Even that phrase, who let the dogs out, had been heard many times before. Which is why Sisto begins digging deeper. The accepted origin of the song points to Trinidadian singer Anselm Douglas. Anselm Douglas wrote a song called Doggy for Carnival in Trinidad. Who let the dogs out? Two years after Doggy's release, Douglas inks a deal to license the track to the Baja Men. They all get their smash hit and earn insane profits. But the good times don't last for Douglas. Where it got complicated for Anselm Douglas is his former brother-in-law was also claiming ownership over the song. He to Douglas. 
There is an out-of-court settlement between Douglas and his brother-in-law. But there's another claim, this one in Florida. This group called Miami Boom Productions from Jacksonville, Florida in the early 90s, they are the first group who took the phrase, who let the dogs out, and set it to music. They've got both floppy disks and cassette tapes that sort of prove that they were the original people to record that hook. But they are never given any credit. Then there's the legend of the song's origins, coming from a football rally cry in the Lone Star State. The earliest I've been able to trace it back is to the Austin Reagan Raiders, who are a football team in Austin, Texas. It's in their 1986 yearbook. And the players I spoke with from that team told me that they think it actually came from a cheerleading squad uh, as early as 1983. The one-hit wonder has gone triple platinum, generating millions of dollars. But who deserves the credit? The Baja men get credit for Who Let the Dogs Out because they were the ones who performed it to the right music at the right time, and theirs is the version that we all know and love. The Baja men were given the opportunity to cover a song, and it changed their lives. A legal battle that changes music forever. A legendary musician haunted by the death of a friend. And an earworm with murky origins. All belong to music's greatest mysteries. Thank you for joining us for Music's Greatest Mysteries, where we investigate the legendary mysteries surrounding the biggest names in music. Now remember, if you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Also, go ahead and leave us a review and don't keep the show a secret. Tell a friend.